Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. For um, the better part of, um, I guess, a little over a month here, we've been looking at various topical messages uh, in between our book studies. And this morning, we are um, beginning to turn the page as we come to 1 Peter. This is going to be our focus together um, over the next uh, several months, looking through this letter from Peter to the, um, not just one church, but a number of churches that are scattered throughout the region that we would call modern-day Turkey. Um, and um, we want to just look at a preliminary way this morning, uh, the theme of this book, and then next Sunday we'll kind of set it up in terms of a big, broad overview of the specific structure of it. But uh, to begin this morning, I want to just ask you to consider if you've ever uh, immersed yourself in a famous missionary's biography or thumbed through a resource like Fox's Book of Martyrs is a kind of a popular one that's publicly available, or you've even just heard testimonies of old saints who are incredibly fruitful in the face of overwhelming difficulties, I think all of us at some point uh, have thought to ourselves, I don't know if I could have actually endured those things. You look at the, what, they, what they went through. I remember reading Adoniram Judson's biography to the Golden Shore a number of years ago, and Judson, Judson was the first missionary to take the gospel to Burma back in the 1800s. He was on the field for seven years before he even had one soul consider uh, professing faith in Christ and being baptized and added to the church. Um, and, uh, and by that point, he had completely been cut off from his sending organization. He actually came to um, a believer's baptism position while he was traveling onto the field uh, and wrote his uh, sending agency back that he had switched uh, his um, convictions on that, and they, they let him go, so he lost his support. He'd buried, by that time, after seven years, he had buried family members on the field. He had battled life-threatening illness several times over. And uh, the, the troubles that he endured were, were unbelievable. Uh, William Carey, he used his incredible capacity for languages to translate the Bible into various dialects in India. And over the course of his life, he paid a huge price personally for that investment. Um, he paid the price of his family, he suffered great sickness, and he was constantly at risk from the, from the pagan cultures that he was working with. If we look to the scriptures, Hebrews 11 tells us that, that the people uh, that um, stood in faith were those who conquered kingdoms, but they shut the mouths of lions, they quenched the power of fire, they escaped the edge of the sword, they put foreign armies to flight. But it also tells us of others who walked by faith, who were tortured, mocked, scourged, uh, carried about in chains and imprisonment, were sawn in two, the writer of Hebrews says, put to death, destitute, afflicted, wandering through deserts, mountains, and even holes in the ground. These are the things that they endured on account of their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. It, when you read these things and you see them in the scriptures, it puts... It puts our quote-unquote struggle to get to church by 9.15 in perspective, does it not? When I've read about the real costs in terms of blood, sweat, and tears that some of God's people have paid because of their commitment to Christ uh, through the centuries, I have often thought, I don't know if I could have endured that. I don't know. 
When I hear or read about the price exacted in terms of life and limb that God's disciples sacrificed in pursuit of the prize, it seems like they're tapping into a spiritual resource that I don't even know about. It seems as if they're they are drawing upon a reserve that I could only hope to have. I've often thought to myself, and maybe you have as well, how did they do it? How did they do it? How did they persevere under that kind of relentless pressure? In the midst of those kinds of difficulties, how did they stand firm? And I guess maybe even more importantly, how can I and how can you do the same? Our upcoming study through 1 Peter is going to answer these questions with divine wisdom. One of the final exhortations by Peter in the book, one that puts a a very nice tight bow on all that he says in this letter, all that he says to them to live as strangers and exiles in a en route to the promised land that is the new creation. At the, the second to last exhortation in the book in chapter 5 and verse 12 is this. He says, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Stand firm in it. Put simply, Peter is going to teach us as we work through this book how we as believers in a dark and in a hostile world can live and arrive at that heavenly rest promised at Christ's coming. This wasn't just Peter's commitment and concern. This was also deeply uh, ingrained in the ministry of the Apostle Paul as he corresponded with various churches that he ministered to. Um, Paul's final words to the church in Ephesus were, uh, are an exhortation for him, for them, excuse me, to stand firm. If you look at chapter 6 in Ephesians, you just skim through verses 10 to 18, for example, and you see these exhortations. Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, therefore, take up the full armor of God so you will be able to resist and having done everything to stand firm. Verse 14, stand firm, therefore. And he goes through the the various uh, believers' armor pieces. Verse 18, he says, uh, take up, uh, be on the alert with all, excuse me, uh, with all prayer and petition in the spirit, with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and patience. He says, for all the saints, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. He wants them to persevere. This is just another way of saying stand firm. Paul's concern for his readers, like Peter's, is that we as believers would remain grounded, that we would hold the ground spiritually no matter what in the providence of God that he brings into our lives. And to drive home this point, Paul employs in Ephesians and elsewhere this imagery of a soldier. Uh, he, He speaks of a soldier who's strengthened in the Lord to stand defensively against the relentless onslaught of the devil and his and those who are aligned with him. 
Satan and his spiritual host desire, the scriptures tell us, to rob us of our spiritual privileges. And Paul even kind of ties that into what he writes in the previous chapters, chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians, where he lays out those spiritual privileges that we have in Christ. Satan is actively seeking to gain back the spiritual ground that Christ has, has won, that Christ has claimed to himself and for his kingdom purposes. And because of that, we are in need of supernatural power to stand defensively, to stand victoriously in the midst of all manner of spiritual wickedness. These verses in 1 Peter remind us that the Christian life is in fact, it is a battle. It is a battle. The image that you should keep in your mind as you read through the New Testament is one of a, tr- of a soldier deployed in conflict. We must think of ourselves as soldiers, as people in the army of the living God who are always on the front lines preparing for conflict against the evil one. We live in a very anti-supernatural time and culture, and so to think that way is very counter-cultural. But we cannot ignore the word of God. And that would make such a huge difference, I believe, to the church collectively, the Christian church collectively, if we viewed ourselves in that light. Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous preacher from the 20th century in England, wrote in his little book, The Christian Soldier, quote, The world outside is not interested in Christianity, for it thinks that it is something sentimental and sloppy and spineless. Do our lives suggest, he says, that there's some truth in the criticism? Are we guilty of a kind of softness which is an utter misrepresentation of Christ's truth? End quote. These are questions we need to ask ourselves. The Christian life is one of warfare. But it's not physical warfare. We have to understand that. It is not physical warfare. Our struggle, Paul says, is not against flesh and blood. It is a spiritual battle. It is spiritual warfare. The Christian life is one of continual spiritual conflict. Conflict within, in our own hearts, as we deal battle with the remaining flesh, but also there is this uh, conflict without as we seek to stand firm against Satan and his hellish deceptions. But the reality is that we have a fight in front of us every day. And Paul's exhortation here to us in, in Ephesians 6 is to stand, to pull ourselves together, to brace ourselves for battle And Peter, likewise, says the same thing. He says, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And we need to hear that. We need to be reminded of that reality. I need to be reminded of that. As soon as we give into the, if we don't do that, if we give into the temptation to self-pity, then we become discouraged. We lose something of our spiritual vitality. We lose something of our spiritual usefulness in this fight. That's why Peter says in chapter 4 and verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. He says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. And we should not be surprised that our Christian life is a life of spiritual warfare. And it is a struggle. It is a struggle. The New Testament's word to every disciple of Christ this morning is to stand and to do so firmly, to stand firm.
So the question becomes, practically speaking, how do I do that? How do I do that? How do you stand firm, as Paul says, in the Lord's strength? Or to quote Peter in chapter 5, what does it mean to stand firm in the true grace of God? Because it would seem to imply that there's a way of standing firm that isn't in the Lord's strength. That there is a way of standing firm and holding our ground that is not rooted in the grace of God. Otherwise, why use the qualifying phrase? What exactly does it mean to be strengthened in the Lord's might? How would you know you're operating in the Lord's strength and not your own? Is it some kind of supernatural zap from heaven? Is it, um, is it a passive thing where we sit back and we allow God to do something in us? Is there a magical incantation that we have to, to recite to tap into this divine resource? Or is it to do things in the Lord's strength? Is that some kind of emotional frenzy, some kind of manic, adrenaline-fueled runner's high that allows us to accomplish great things for God? What is it? What is it? I don't think it's any of those things. Doing something in God's strength isn't about a lightning bolt from heaven. It, it isn't uh, about letting go and letting God. Um, it's not some specially worded prayer that you pray to invoke God's power. And it's definitely not some manic episode where you flip cars over and go days on end without sleeping. When the Bible talks about standing firm in God's strength, this is what it means. I'm give you a definition. We're going to go back and we'll show you, I'll show you where we got it from. To stand firm in the Lord's strength means cultivating and maintaining a settled conviction in the character and commandments of God, which then compels us through the Spirit to obey the word in all of life's circumstances. I'll repeat that because I know it's a long definition. It is cultivating and maintaining a settled conviction in the character and commandments of God. And from that, being compelled through the Spirit to obey God's word in every circumstance. So it's not a matter of grit. Uh, standing firm in the Lord's strength is not a matter of willpower. It is not even fueled by external motivations or fleshly motivations like the fear of man or pride or personal reputation or spite or any other motive that can drive us in our behavior and our actions or our thoughts. Put simply, it is obedience in all of life's circumstances that arises out of a settled conviction in the character and the commandments of God. You say, Jeff, okay, where are you getting this from? <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a tall order that you've just given us. How do we know that that's biblical? I'm not getting this from the recesses of my imagination. And we could look at a number of different places, but I want us to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 for just a few minutes. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> In this letter... Paul is defending, really, the primary focus of this letter. Is his it is his defense of his ministry and his character before a church that was um, maligning him, misrepresenting him. And it got so bad, even though Paul wasn't usually one to um, 
be defensive. It got so bad that he needed to, he felt the need to write to them to address the things. There were so many things that were said that were false and and inaccurate about him. He he addresses those things. But uh, beginning in chapter 4 and verse 8, down through the end of chapter 4, he talks about the strength that God enables him and and other believers, uh, he gives to them to persevere. He says, as believers, we are afflicted in every way, verse 8, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not despairing. We are persecuted, he says, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We are always, he says, carrying around in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body. For we who live, meaning living Christ, are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. Paul says, as difficult as my life is and your life is, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, we are able to hold the line and to stand firm. That's what he's saying there. And then he pivots in chapter 5, and he directly anchors this capacity to stand firm in the character of God. He shows them where that strength comes from. He says, namely, in verse chapter 5, it comes from God, who is eternal, and because we are united to him by faith, we too share in that same everlasting life. Look at chapter 5 and verse 1. He says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, meaning this this present life and this present body, we groan longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Notice how he begins in verse 1. For we know. We know. It's on the basis of Paul's settled conviction of who God is and what he has revealed to him in his word that he knows, that he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that the one who dies in Christ has salvation waiting for him and an eternal dwelling place awaiting them in the future. He knows that. But notice where this settled conviction about God comes from. It doesn't come out of his intellect. It isn't something that he drums up within him by willpower. Where does it come from? Verse 5. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord." Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Paul links in verse 5 and 6, courage, perseverance to the energizing work of the Spirit. That is the Spirit's work in us. And the triune God has given us himself by giving us the gift of his Spirit, enabling us with eyes of faith, verse 7, to know the very mind of Christ. Right? That's how we know God's word. Not just know it, but know it. And we know the very mind of Christ as we know the very mind of Christ, verses 8 and 9. 
He plants, the Spirit does within us as believers, an inner conviction to obey. Do you see it there in verse 9? No matter what, his desire is to be pleasing to the Lord. So we have a settled conviction by faith through the agency of the Spirit, and that does something. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, meaning all who are in Christ, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. The settled conviction in God's character, he says, controls, it constrains, it compels. You could translate it compels. I think ESV does compels compels us to no longer live selfishly for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again. So it is a settled conviction, this spirit-wrought settled conviction that divinely strengthened Paul to obey God in all of life's circumstances. So standing firm in God's strength isn't passive. It's not a passive endeavor like waiting around for the bus to come and take you to your final destination. It's an active process. Standing firm is an active process. I don't know if you've ever sailed a boat before. I'm not really a sailor. Um, I guess one of us, a couple of us have been in the Navy, so maybe you have. But, but years ago, when we lived in Florida, there was a gentleman in our church who was... Um, he offered to take a few of us out on a, a little catamaran. Florida Gulf Coast University was right, uh, right there by our, our home, and some of the students at our church could rent these little sunfish things. You could take them out on the lake. And he said, I, you know, we didn't know how to, we didn't have sail, so he took us out. Uh, he, this gentleman this, uh, was kind enough to, to organize that all for us. So... I needed to learn how to sail before I go. I wasn't going to go into this blind. So I did what, all, uh, what I do all the time, which is I Googled how, how to sail, how to sail. And I learned a lot about sailing. I learned about points of sail that allow a boat to move with varying degrees of efficiency, um, depending on the direction of the wind. I learned that if you're sailing directly into the wind, guess what? You don't move. It's called being in irons. If you sail at an angle somewhat perpendicular to the wind, you can, you can move relatively efficiently. But if you really want to move, if you really want to book it, you need to have the wind at your back. It's called running, apparently. Some of you probably know more about this than I do, so bear with me in this illustration. But sailing, the reality is sailing is a very active process. You're constantly assessing the wind, direction, you're, you're assessing the speed of the wind. You're, direct, you're, you're trying to con, take into consideration the, the angle of your sail and how it's trimmed, your course, your destination. And at the end of the day, though, reality is it's the strength of the wind that moves the boat. It's the wind that moves the boat. Our, your responsibility when sailing is to actively trim the sails to tap into the wind's power as it's moving. And I think that's a fitting illustration because in the same way that the sailor is actively positioning himself to tap into the wind's power, you and I as believers 
are to be actively trimming the sail of our heart to tap into God's strength. When we cultivate and maintain a settled conviction in God's character, and as we understand his commandments, we are trimming the sail of our hearts to harness the full capacity of God's strength. And when that happens, when we do that, great things happen for God. Great things. We can endure disappointment. We can ride through temptation. We can We can undergo intense persecution. We can weather sickness and financial calamity and fill in the blank. And we can do that with the wind at our back spiritually. Doesn't mean that it's smooth sailing. It doesn't mean it's not dangerous. But what happens is we are pressing on, as Paul says, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And we can be confident that we're doing it in God's strength. And so with the time that we have left, I want to briefly highlight three foundational realities that will enable us to stand firm in God's strength through life's challenges. Three foundational realities that will enable us to stand firm in God's capacity, God's strength, through all of life's challenges. There are things, these are things that we'll come back to as we move through 1 Peter but before we even get into the book, I, I think it'd be, we'll be better served, better prepared if these things are already front and center in our minds. The first is this. Uh, we must embrace, you must embrace, and I must embrace, your weakness. You must embrace your weakness. This is critical to standing firm in God's strength. And at first blush, that might seem like a, like a paradox, but as we'll see in just a minute, it's anything but. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. Peter says this, You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Verse 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. In our own so-called wisdom, in our own so-called capacity, we are not able to stand firm in the Lord's strength. To put it even more plainly, we are weak. And in order to take appropriate action, we actually need to acknowledge we need God's capacity. Acknowledging and embracing our weakness is essential to tapping into God's strength because the one who's deluded by his or her own supposed ability is, as, Paul, as Peter says here, by default, deluded. And they are refusing to accept God's enabling grace. And Peter says they will fail. God will oppose that, that man or that woman. And he says it as straightforwardly as possible. When I embrace my weakness... He says, then and only then am I in a position to tap into God's strength. Paul, similarly, same thing. Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9, later on in that letter. He says he would gladly, he gladly boasted in his weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ would dwell in me. I've often been um, struck over the years in counseling at times, not all the time, but at times with people whose lives are falling apart on account of their own sin. And there have been a few of those situations. 
I'm amazed how stubborn some of them can be to embrace the reality of their failings and to receive biblical counsel. It's kind of amazing. They'll actually sit there and tell you why they're right and God's word is wrong or doesn't apply to them in that situation. And there have literally been a few times where I have stopped them and said, how is that working for you? How is that working for you? How is approaching this situation, that situation on your terms rather than God's, how's that turned out? I mean, we're not pragmatists. We don't do things because they quote-unquote work as believers. But at a certain point, this is the simple sowing and reaping principle should cause someone in a situation like that to stand back and say, maybe I'm not up to the challenge. And what Peter tells us here is the sooner we arrive at that conclusion, the greater positioned we will be to stand firm in God's strength. Secondly, knowing uh, we must not only uh, embrace our weakness, but you must know your enemy. You must know your enemy. This is critical to standing firm in the Lord's strength. You can't go into battle with any hope of success without some kind of intelligence on your adversary. Uh, a number of our people in our church over the years have worked in or worked alongside the various intelligence agencies. It's just kind of a function of where we are. These organizations obviously have developed all kinds of resources to gather information about potential threats to our country so that we are not blindsided by any attacks. And we need to do the same spiritually. We need to scout the enemy. And the Word of God has given us an intelligence briefing telling us in detail who we're dealing with. Look at, again, 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. Peter says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I mean, this is who we're dealing with. This is who we are up against. There's a couple things that stand out here just in looking at verse 8. The first thing we need to understand is that the enemy is spiritual. The enemy is spiritual. We're not dealing with a physical adversary that you can see with your eyes. We're not dealing with a physical adversary that you can go out and grab hold of and touch with your hands. This is essential because if we're, gonna, if we're looking in the wrong place when the enemy comes at us, we will be caught off guard. There is a constant temptation to wage war against the enemy on a physical level, on a temporal level, rather than where he truly is, as the scripture says, on a spiritual level as a believer. And too many Christians expend far too much time and energy and money to, uh, to borrow the words of Psalm 20, to acquire horses and chariots in pursuit of those things and to control the, the, the seats of power culturally, economically, politically. It's not to say that we don't engage the world on a horizontal plane. We absolutely must as believers. But we need to understand that the church's struggle is primarily on a vertical plane. It is in the spiritual realm. All the evil we see around us in the world is ultimately the coordinated efforts of a satanic world system that is hell-bent on thwarting the gospel and its transforming work in the hearts of men. That's what that's what we're up against as the church. The conflict is not raging externally so much as it is 
internally in men's hearts. And when we understand the enemy is spiritual and operates in the spiritual realm, then we will engage him where he operates. So we need to understand that the enemy is spiritual. But secondly, as we look at verse 8, we also see that the enemy is not only spiritual, but he is formidable. He is formidable. He's not stupid. He's not haphazard. He rarely, if ever, makes an attack from the front. The word of God calls him, scriptures call him the deceiver. He is also referred to elsewhere as the slanderer. Slanderer. His, he, his allies are fully versed in the scriptures. James chapter 2 tells us that, that demons know the word and tremble. Our adversary is formidable. He comes at us from without and within, from positions of authority and by appealing to our fleshly desires. And everything he does is a coordinated effort to distort the word of God and to lead people astray. But as we tap into the Lord's strength, to go back to our purpose here, and maintain a settled conviction in God's character, when we understand his commandments, then we are enabled to obey in any of life's circumstances. Proverbs 18 verse 10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. So we don't need to tremble in fear, but we do need to understand that our enemy is spiritual and he is a formidable opponent. We're not led astray we're not, we're, we're not to be led, exposed on our flanks. We are, able to, we are able to resist the enemy and stand firm in the Lord's strength. Thirdly, feeding your soul is vital to standing firm in God's strength. Feeding your soul is, 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 is essential, vital to standing firm in God's strength. Turn back to 1 Peter chapter 2. In verses 1 to 3, he says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and evil and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. No newborn child ever grows and thrives physically without an adequate diet of mother's milk or some substitute of that in formula. And Peter says here that no believer ever grows and thrives spiritually without an adequate diet of the pure milk of the word. And he adds this kind of qualifying conditional phrase at the end of uh, there in verse 3, if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. This is, this is the one who has come to Christ, wherever you are in Christ. It's not just, he's not talking about just new believers here. This applies to every believer, whether you've come to Christ three months ago, three, month, uh, three days ago, three months ago, three years ago, three decades ago. It's, this, the principle applies. We must constantly put to death, verse 1, the deeds of the flesh, and that's what he's laying out there, and then we consequently at the same time must let the word of Christ richly dwell within us. Christians who are hungry for the word, hungry to know it, hungry to obey it, they're the ones who grow. They're the ones that grow in maturity 
And they're the ones who stand firm in the Lord's strength. So Peter reminds us, he reminds us, if we don't want to get tossed here and there by all of life's trials and tribulations, if we don't want to let our guard down amidst life's temptations and temporal blessings, sometimes God and Satan uses things that are good to us to lead us astray. If we don't want those things to happen, we need to feast on the word. As Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And I promise you, you can't have a settled conviction in God's character and his commandments if you only have a passing acquaintance with them. You have to pursue them. You have to, you have to study the word. You have to not only study the word, you have to meditate on the word. Then you need to turn the, the truth over in your mind, understanding all of its implications and applications for your heart and your life in every situation. As one Puritan wrote, treasure up in your soul a stock of spiritual truths. Truths in the soul are like gold, he said, in the ore. Meditation coins the gold and brings it forth in holy speech and pious actions. He says, but ignorance is that which does impoverish the soul. So, so we must embrace our weakness, we must know our enemy, and we must feed our souls. And so that's why, Lord willing, we're going to study 1 Peter. <laughs> that's why we're going to study 1 Peter. And that's why we study every book that we study sequentially and comprehensively, because we want to feed our souls on God's perfect and holy word. That's what we want. We're going to take it one section at a time, and we're going, to, we're going to explain it. We're going to illustrate it. We're going to apply it to our hearts and lives, and we're going to trust that God is going to grow us and enable us to stand firm in the true grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have in our weakness true strength. And as we're going to see in 1 Peter, that even in our humiliation, in our degradation, in our persecution, we are turning the worlds upside down because the calculus is humiliation leads to exaltation in eternal glory. The world, the world looks out and sees glory for the taking, and they want it, and they will end up with nothing but you have called us to walk the path that Christ walked, to embrace the cross, to embrace our weakness, to recognize our enemy, and to be absolutely dependent like newborn babes on the pure milk of the word that we might stand firm in it. Lord, may that be true of our hearts this morning, be true of our church. May we, as we study through this letter over the coming weeks and months, be able to, at the end of it, really be better equipped to do this work of holding this ground that you have purchased for us at so great a price. We thank you for your love for sinners. And Lord, in our own capacity, we are nothing, but you are everything. So help us to love you and help us to see Christ high and exalted in this study, this book study, and may it cause us to be lowly, that your grace may flow through us and make us more like 
the one who bought us at such a wonderful price. Lord, we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.